0: Good morning. It is so good to be here with you this morning. Um, The opportunity to be here to join with you in worship, to to open God's word together. Uh, Such a blessing, such an honor. Um, If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we've been uh, going through the life of of Jacob. Uh, This morning we're going to fast forward several centuries uh, and look at... Um, the message from the prophet Micah. Um, so we're going to be reading uh, from Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. Uh, let me go ahead and read that and invite you to follow along as I read. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. As we turn now to your word, we know that you hear uh, our prayers and that you will be faithful to open our ears, to open our hearts, to open our minds, that we would hear your word and be changed this morning. I ask that as you speak to us, that we would receive your word, and that we would uh, accept it and carry it with us as we leave here, I ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. So this morning, as we again as we move ahead from the life of Jacob, many centuries, we find Jacob's descendants living in the Promised Land, the land that God was faithful to provide to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But at this point, they're, uh, they've been living in the land, they've had their ups and downs, and at this point, they're under threat of invasion uh, from the nations around them, primarily the Assyrians. And so we look at, at who Micah is and the people that he's speaking to. Let's get this in sync real quick. All right. Uh, so it's important that we understand the context, who Micah is and the people that he's speaking to. Uh, At the time, the religious uh, experience of the people was um, this odd combination. They were very enthusiastic um, about their religious observance. But at the same time, they were also very disobedient. They had imported a lot of elements from the nations around them into their worship. So they were enthusiastically attempting to worship and offering sacrifices, but not in ways that were pleasing to God. And so that's part of what Micah is addressing throughout his book. Additionally, the the power in that that region had become very centralized within the cities, both in Jerusalem and in Samaria. And the peasants, the farmers out in the the rural areas were often oppressed, taken advantage of by the wealthy landowners. And Micah comes from one of these small towns, a town of Moresheth outside of Jerusalem. He's very familiar with the experience of what it is to be oppressed by these wealthy landowners. So that's also part of what the book of Micah addresses. Now these, these have occurred in the prior five chapters of Micah, but as we turn to chapter 6, uh, we find uh, God bringing a lawsuit against the people. He has an indictment to bring against his own chosen people. So, we're going to break this, this lawsuit down. It has a lot of the common elements that are familiar even to, to us today. First, we find that this court, this lawsuit, takes place in a court. Uh, God calls as witnesses the hills, the mountains, the foundations of the earth to be witnesses to this lawsuit, to his claim against them. Now, wh- why those elements of creation? It's because the creation, God's creation, was there when God established the covenant with the people. These mountains, these hills, the foundations have been there throughout the course of God's faithfulness to the people and have borne witness to to the ways that the people have responded to God. And so there in the courtroom, creation is is called as witness. So the next step is to, to provide the indictment, the accusation against the people. So God says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Now it's really interesting that, that God isn't spelling out all of the ways that, that Israel has been unfaithful to him. You see, that, that's been established both previously in Micah and through other prophets. At this point, there's really no question of whether the people have faithfully been obedient to God. God's moved past that question and at this point simply asks, why? What have I done? Because see, for God, God told them. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And see, that should have been enough for the people of Israel. If only they would have relied on God. So now God wants to know, what what has happened? How have I become a wearisome burden to you? So as any good court case, God provides evidence in his own defense. So not only has the Lord done nothing to weary or burden the people, In fact, God has given them every advantage, every reason to be obedient. So God introduces several pieces of evidence, things that he has done for these people throughout their history. Now it's really, you can see this is just a few very short verses, and God covers a lot of ground very quickly. So he's calling these things out in a kind of shorthand. God isn't telling the people something that they don't already know. God isn't isn't informing them something informing them of something that is new to them, that they've never heard before. All God is doing is calling to mind the things that, people, that the people of God have already heard and should already know. But however, they've lost sight of these things that God has done. They've, they've been uh, blocked out of mind as the people are so concerned about this threat of invasion. They've become desperate and turned to religions of the people around them and lost sight of God, so God is providing this reminder for them of all that he's done. And so he begins in verse 4, he says, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Now this bringing the people out of Egypt is is one of God's hallmark events with the people. It's really here that he establishes them. They had been enslaved, they had been Really nothing in Egypt. And God brings them and makes them a people as he promised to Abraham. And now certainly the people in Micah's day hadn't experienced this firsthand. This is many centuries after the events of Exodus. But again, the very existence of the nation of Israel goes back to God's faithfulness to bring them out of slavery. If it weren't for that, there would be no nation of Israel. But God was faithful. And he continues... And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Now it's interesting here, God cites these three people that he gave uh, to Israel. He doesn't remind them that he gave them a law, he reminds them that he gave them a law giver. You see, that's what Moses was for them. Moses was the law giver. He was their leader, their commander. And Aaron as well, Aaron was their priest to offer sacrifice on their behalf. And to intercede on behalf of the people before God. Miriam as well. Miriam was a prophet through whom God spoke to the people. And these three people represent early Israel's relationship with God. God met their need for a tangible, visible personification of that relationship. And that's what these three represent. They're just representatives of God's ongoing provision and relationship with the people. God continues his evidence. Oops, we're not there yet. God continues his evidence. Uh, he carries on in verse 5, calling to mind, O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him. Now this story may not be quite as familiar to you. It, it looks back to Numbers chapters 22 through 24. Now at the end of the um, wilderness wandering, uh, prior to entering the promised land. Balak was a king of Moab, and he had seen what God had done for the Israelites, the way God protected them, the way God was their champion in battle. And so Balak was concerned. He was fearful of the people of Israel. So he went to the prophet Balaam and asked Balaam to curse Israel. Now, as a prophet, Balaam, Balaam turned to get a word from God. God certainly instructed him not to curse the people of Israel. But not only that, to be a blessing to the people. And so just these few words, Balak and beor reminds the people of Israel, reminds be- uh, Micah's audience that God interceded on their behalf, that, that God blessed them and prevented their enemies from cursing them. God protected them. And again, God goes on from... He says, remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And again, this is shorthand. What happened between Shittim and Gilgal is monumental. Shittim was the last place that the nation of Israel camped before crossing the Jordan into the promised land. Gilgal was the first place that they camped on the other side after entering the promised land. So what happened from Shittim to Gilgal is God was faithful God kept his promise to the people, and, and this, is, this is where God fulfilled what he told them that he would do. So God has presented this evidence. He's used these things to remind the people of his faithfulness, and certainly they needed to be reminded. They had been blinded by what was going on in the world around them. I don't know about you, but that sounds familiar to me. I know God is faithful, and yet at times I'm blinded by what's going on in the world around me. You see, sometimes for us it's, it's our own desperation, sometimes it's our fear, uh, perhaps it's just so short-sighted jealousy and lust, all these things that cause us to lose sight of who God is and what God has done. We need to have these landmarks that we can turn to and we can be reminded of God's faithfulness even when it doesn't feel like God is faithful in the moment. And so we, we're fortunate. We can turn to Scripture. We can read of God's faithfulness to the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. We can read of God's faithfulness to deliver a Savior in Jesus. We can, re, we can read of God establishing his church through the New Testament. But here 20,000 years, 20,000 years, 2,000 years later, we can look back on the history of the church and see all that God has done to to preserve his bride, the church, to protect the church, to purify the church. And in your own lives, I hope and pray that each of you has times you can look back on and see that God was faithful, that God provided. These things give us hope and confidence that just as God provided in the past, God will continue to provide in the future. So that's what Micah was delivering to the people, that reminder That God has been faithful and God will be faithful. Now the people respond. They give their own defense. Picking up in verse 6, it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? You see, Israel is asking this question, what should we bring before the Lord? As if they don't already know, as if they haven't been told what they ought to bring. See, their, their assertion is that they're willing to bring any sacrifice that God desires or requires. If it's not just calves a year old, what about thousands of rams? If that's not yet enough, how about thousands of rivers of oil? But if that's not even enough, the people say that they're willing to give their firstborn son for their transgressions. And it's interesting here, they they continue to escalate their offerings, but it's not what God is looking for. They have this misguided notion that, that they need to earn God's favor and that can be done by offering sacrifices. That's what they've learned from the nations around them is that that's how to curry favor with a God, is to offer more and more sacrifices. Now where this gets them is that they don't know where to stop. They don't know if thousands of rams are enough, so they offer their own children. Again, they're very religiously devout, at least in word, if not in deed, but they're lacking in obedience to God. Now, God has heard this defense. God offers an objection. Now, just any, any TV drama, if you've seen any trial TV show, a crucial element, the, the exciting part Your honor, I object. You have to have a good objection in any drama. And God here is objecting to the people's claim that they don't know what he requires of them. You see, uh, in verse 8, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. He has shown you the things that you should do. He has made it conspicuous and obvious for the people what he expects of them. And we find this, just one example in Deuteronomy, chapter 10, it says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? You see, God has told them, not just there, throughout their history, God has made clear to them what he expects of them. And so their argument, their defense that they don't know what God wants really just doesn't hold water and so here Mike through Micah God reiterates once again what does the Lord require of you and in verse 8 he continues to do justice to love kindness to walk humbly with your God these are the things that God desires of the people now that's very very brief very succinct so what does that mean how do we apply that today uh, first, he says to do justice. Now, in our world, we hear so much nowadays about justice and calls for justice. And what does that mean? We hear pleas for recognition and respect for the rights of all people. We hear calls for a justice that, are, that often seek punishment for wrongdoing. Now, certainly these are aspects, important aspects of justice. And God's justice, God's idea of justice, certainly includes these things. But that's not really the the totality of what God means when he calls for us to do justice. It's really only the beginning. Micah's understanding of justice is more than making sure that everything is fair. It's more than making sure that rules and laws are accurately applied. As an example, I turn to, to the law of Moses where God recognizes both justice but also the impacts of human greed. And so we read in Leviticus 23, it says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor, for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, according to worldly justice, a landowner should have the right to the produce to the harvest of his field. That just makes sense. It's your field. It's your produce. Similarly, someone who doesn't own land, what right do they have to claim? What claim do they have to the harvest of the field? If it's not their field, it's not their harvest. That's justice, right? But that's not what just. That's not the justice that God calls us to. Uh, God's justice is more about defending the weak than applying the law. It's about providing for the poor, even when simple fairness does not require that that we care for the poor. When what's fair allows us to take advantage of the poor. That's not God's idea of justice. In fact in Psalm one hundred forty six it says The Lord executes justice for the oppressed. God gives food to the hungry. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. You see, God speaks out. God acts against these unjust systems. But God is also concerned with restoring dignity to the downtrodden. He's on the side of the oppressed, of the sojourners, of the fatherless, of those who are bowed down. God is their advocate. And so for us to do justice the way that God does justice, it often requires us to help those in need, to be an advocate for those who are disadvantaged. Throughout Scripture, we see God as a defender of the poor and the oppressed. You may be familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. We won't won't go into the details, but you may recall that um, a man was beaten and robbed, left by the side of the road to die. And first a priest and then a Levite both walked by. What did they do? They exercised their right to continue to, to go on their way. Is that what justice means? To continue on your way when there's someone in need? That's not what God calls us to. You remember the Samaritan is the one who took action, who saw to it that this man was cared for, that he was healed, that he was provided for. And Jesus used that as an example of what it means to love a neighbor. You see, God is about taking action on behalf of those in need. And most importantly here, Micah says to do justice. We're not called to just think about justice or to hope for justice or to wish for justice. We're called to do justice. So what does that mean for for you and me as we leave here today, as we get back to our lives tomorrow? What does it look like to do justice? Certainly it may be advocating against inequality and against infringement of rights, advocating for peace and for unity in our communities. It may also look more like caring for that single mother down the street who's having trouble making ends meet. It may be participating in outreach to the Booker T. Washington community, providing food, but also building relationships. Maybe it's working with an organization like Love, Inc. that uh, serves and cares for the needs of the community. Whatever that looks like, whatever justice means, it comes as a result of loving the people around us. So doing justice, then, is inextricably linked to loving kindness and mercy. That's the next thing that, that Micah lists, to love kindness. Now, this, this second requirement moves away from our outward actions of doing justice towards our inner motives, our motivation um, as we love kindness and mercy. Now, that word is, I, I say kindness and mercy, you'll find in your ESV, it says love kindness. Other translations say love mercy. Um, the truth is, it's love hesed if you ever get a chance to learn just one Hebrew word, learn this word hesed. Because um, it brings with it so much more than just kindness. It's so much more than just mercy. It, it's a combination of things like loyalty, fidelity, faithfulness, covenant love, a steadfast love. These are the things that Micah is talking about when he says, love hesed, to love kindness. And what's important here is that Micah is calling us Toward this significant kind of love, the love that's a way of life. This Hesed love is most often used to describe God's love for us because God is faithful, God is merciful, God is kind, and God is with us every step of the way through thick and thin. And so when we're called to love Hesed, to love mercy and kindness, we're called to love the way that God loves. We're called to be a reflection of God's love to the people around us, to the world who needs it so desperately. So doing justice and loving mercy are closely connected. You see, we don't care for one another. We don't help. We don't advocate simply because it's a nice thing to do. We do it out of genuine concern for compassion and love and kindness that comes from God. And God is that source, the example of perfect love. And so how do we come to know what perfect love is? That's the third requirement that Micah provides, to walk humbly with your God. It's by living in relationship with God that we learn what this hesed love is. God is a God that we can relate to as a friend. Now this is, it's an incredible privilege that we have, something we can't overlook, that the creator God not only knows you, knows all about you, but loves you, not only loves you, but desires to have a relationship with you. That's an incredible, incredible gift and a privilege to be able to walk side by side with the creator God, the all-powerful. And that's how we come to know who God is, and it doesn't happen in one day. To walk with someone is to, is to carry that relationship over the course of time, to invest in a relationship with, one, with another. And in walking with God, hearts become transformed. We're molded to be more like him in the ways that we love and in the ways that we see the people around us. So when we when we do this, when we walk humbly with God, from there, our hearts will be changed. We will come to love mercy and kindness. And in loving mercy and kindness, loving the way that God loves, we will come to do justice. Now, it's really important as we look at this statement of the things that God requires, it's important that we get the order right. Because it could be so easy to fall into the same misunderstanding that plagued Israel. You know, they felt like, if I do these things, then God will grant us favor. God, Then God will protect us. And you see, it's not about three more boxes for us to check in order to earn God's love. As we humbly walk with God, we become reminded of who God is, God's perfection, God's holiness. We also recognize how far we fall short of being like God. God has given us a standard, but we fail to live up to it. We cannot live up to it. Fortunately, there's good news. And the good news is this. In Romans 5.8, it says, But God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, before we did anything to earn God's love, God loved us first. While we were still sinners in rebellion against God, Christ died for us to renew, restore that relationship with God. You see, doing justice and loving mercy and walking with God don't earn God's favor. There's no amount of of misguided religious fervor that can ever cause God to love you any more than God already does. See, Christ has freely given you the favor with God that you could never earn or deserve. And God desires for you to come to know that love and to experience who God is. And when you've had that experience of God, of forgiveness from God, of love, then we're invited to respond to that love by walking with God in a close relationship that's been restored. We're not invited to continue to to wallow in selfishness, in pride, and in sin. Instead, we can't respond. Uh, we can't respond as though nothing has happened, as though God's love doesn't have any impact and hasn't changed us. So instead of not responding at all, or instead of continuing. In our prior ways, God invites us, encourages us, desires for us to respond by walking with him in close relationship, to become more like him. Doing justice and loving mercy, these are not things that earn God's love or salvation, but they're evidence of it. So Mike has put it very succinctly for us. What does the Lord require but to do justice? to love kindness and mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And it's in this walking with God that we're changed. We're made new. We're restored. We're given a heart that loves the way that God loves. And the actions that flow from a heart that's experienced that love is doing justice, is taking action on behalf of the people that we love the way that God loves. And so... These three requirements that we find in Micah, they tie together so well. But it begins with God and includes us responding to God by walking, by loving, and by taking action. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder of who you are. We ask that you would renew our hearts and our minds, and we pray that you would change us to be more like you. Fill us with the reflection of your character, and help us to act out justice, to show love and mercy, and to walk humbly with you each day. May we rely on you more and more as our source and our guide. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.